The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. But I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, this morning to Exodus chapter 20. And in today's message, we're studying the second commandment, a commandment that we actually take very seriously as members of the Berean Baptist Church. A few days ago, I I received a letter from a man who asked a question about a statement that's on our website. And it was essentially a question about repentance, even though he didn't phrase it exactly that way. On our website, we make a statement that for a person to be saved, that he must repent of all of his sins and turn from them and place his faith in Jesus Christ. And this man who wrote to me, I, I think that he was a Christian, or he is a Christian, but he didn't agree with that statement. He didn't believe that it was necessary for us to forsake sin or that uh, you needed to give up anything in order to be saved. He said that a person could be a drunkard and He could trust Christ without any promise that he would give up his sin of drunkenness. And in his opinion, he said that renouncing sin or forsaking sin would be a work salvation, as if we are saved because we give up things. And that's not really a a strange opinion because we run into that quite often with people who don't understand how grace and law interact, and they don't understand the inherent characteristics of saving faith, And so they'll argue that a person can be involved in illicit sex, in alcohol, in cursing, and in drugs, and God will save them from their sins, but he doesn't require from them any promise that they're going to give up sin before they trust Christ. Well, there's actually a very easy rebuttal to that argument. And in my discussion with him, I saw a door that opened up to the Ten Commandments, that every sin that you can commit is included in the Ten Commandments. Sex, cursing, alcohol, drugs, all of them are included. You might not see it lying on the surface or right up front, but I promise you by the time we're finished with the exposition of all these commandments, you will see those things very clearly, that every sin that you can commit is comprehended in the Ten Commandments. Now, understanding then that all sins are covered there, I asked this man about idolatry. Uh, Can you be saved and be a worshiper of a false god? Will Christ save you if you do not agree to give up the idols that you worship, that you would make no promise to God, that you would give up false gods worshiping idols before you trust Jesus Christ? Would he save you if you said, or made any, they made no kind of promise, while you're in the middle of worshiping a false god, would Christ save you? So do you have to renounce all other gods, the sin of idolatry? Now, idolatry, of course, is a very serious sin. It's so serious that wars have been fought over it, that God has destroyed nations because of their refusal to give up their idolatry. So the question that I posed to this man was, if you don't have to give up sin to be saved, then what about the sin of idolatry? Will will God allow you to worship a false god, and at the same time, you can receive salvation from the Lord? And then there's a second question that I asked him. I said, is there any of the commandments of the ten that's less important than another commandment? Does the first have to be obeyed, but not the tenth? Is the second more important than the fifth? And this is where we come to the crux of the Ten Commandments. To break any of the Ten Commandments is actually idolatry. And we say, well, how is that possible? How is that idolatry? It's because when you, when you commit any sin, you're putting your way above God's way. And when you put your way above God's way, then you have another God besides him. That is you. And so self becomes your God. And so self is your idol. Now you take a look around the auditorium today. As I said, we're a church that's very serious about 
idolatry from side to side, corner to corner in our building. You won't find any statues. There are no idols that are here. We would say about ourselves, there's definitely no way that we are ever guilty of this sin of idolatry. You don't see any statues of Mary in our church. There's not an image to a saint. There's no image of an angel. There are no pictures of God the Father. There are no pictures of Jesus Christ, His Son. The cross over our baptistry, that is not a crucifix. There is no Christ who hangs on it. I haven't done this. I haven't checked it lately. But we do have standing orders to our Sunday school teachers and to our Pioneer Club workers that we are not to use any pictures that are images of a man that represents Jesus Christ. Because that is idolatry. And so we're very confident as we look around, we look at the materials that we use, that we would say about ourselves, we're not guilty of idolatry. We don't worship idols. But I would have to ask the question, can we be that confident? Are we so sure that we don't worship idols? Well, if we break any of the Ten Commandments, then we're guilty of idolatry. Let me just show you one verse of Scripture that will help you out on this. Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul wrote, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You hear the last part? Covetousness, which is idolatry. So there, Paul is telling us that greed, that the lust for money, the pursuit of wealth, anything that takes us out of the service of God, that you want more than what God has graciously given, anything that you give yourself more to than you do to God, that is idolatry. Now, many Bible students believe that in the context of Colossians chapter 3, that covetousness there actually means a sexual desire. And that's because all the sins that are listed in that verse refer to inordinate sexual acts. And so we ask, is idolatry a problem in our country? Is it a problem in the Berean Baptist Church? We would have to say yes, because in a society that's just filled with rampant lust, we may not have the statues, but in our minds, we can be guilty of the terrible sin of idolatry. And so the answer to that man's question was this, absolutely, we must repent We must renounce all of our sins before Christ will save us. We can't be worshipers of false gods and receive salvation from Christ. Now, that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to speak to you about the practical application of the things that we've learned in the past two lessons about this second commandment, the command not to make idols. Now, let's just take a moment to to look back and see what the commandment is about. What does it teach? Well, first of all, it teaches that the false is forbidden. In essence, that it is forbidden for you to believe anything false about God. Now, that, that's a tall order, but it starts right here. Of course, you can't make your own God. So the first commandment says you can't worship a false God, and the second commandment says that you cannot worship the true God in a false way. And so as sincere and devoted as a person may be, about the idols that they hold and things that they're, their statues, whatever. If you have an image that represents God in any form or an image of anything that helps you in your worship to God, you use it as an aid to worship, that is idolatry. A painting of God is an idol. A crucifix of a man that represents Jesus on the cross. A picture of Jesus is an idol. A statue of Mary is an idol. Not because she's God but because bowing before her statue and crossing yourself and saying prayers while fingering beads, those are idols because they're aids to worship and they are forbidden. You cannot worship the true God in a false way. As I said a a week or so ago, even the cross that you wear around your neck may unintentionally become an idol. If you value that as more than a piece of jewelry... If it means more to you than just another piece, that it's more valuable than anything else to you, that can become an idol. Now, there was a person who asked me a question about that as she was going out the door. I think it was last week. And she said she was very concerned about it. And and she had a cross around her neck. And she said, you know, this cross means a lot to me. 
this was given to me by someone who is very dear to me. A, a precious person that I love gave this to me, and so it has a lot of value. And I said, well, I'm not talking about that. Because someone gave you a cross, a piece of jewelry, because they love you or because it's a nice piece of jewelry. Yeah, yeah, you, you might like that piece of jewelry. You may value it more than any other jewelry that you have. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when that cross makes you feel closer to God. That because you wear the cross, that makes you a better Christian. It's an aid to your worship. That's when it becomes an idol. A picture of Jesus that you have in your home on the wall is an idol. God said for you not to make any representation of him. And if you do those things, you know that in your heart that that picture of Jesus means more to you than a picture of grandma. And if it doesn't mean more to you than a picture of grandma, then you're really in trouble because then you're saying that the picture of Jesus is no better or is the same as grandma. So if that doesn't devalue Jesus, then I don't know what is, what does. You see, you just can't hold on to these things. You can't go against the Word of God. You're going to find yourself in this conundrum that you're worshiping an idol when you have those pictures. That will cause you to think about Jesus Christ, and that is exactly what God says that you shouldn't do. Now, a different opinion about this, I'm sorry, doesn't count. This is the Word of God. A picture, a statue that represents God for any purpose is idolatry. And that's what it means. The false is forbidden. Now, secondly, then, why are we never to make images to worship? Because an image is impossible. That it's impossible to capture who God is in an image. It's impossible to capture him because anything that you try to make God look like will debase God because it brings God down to our level. You can't see who God truly is in that image. Now, if you look for just a minute at verse number 25 in this 20th chapter, it says, And if thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. God said, you are not to make an altar of stones that you have cut and that you have polished to make them beautiful. In other words, God says, you cannot put your hand to the altar and try to improve it as if you're going to make God better than what he is. Now, here's the point. If you can't make a beautiful altar, God says you can't do that, then how are you going to make an image to the invisible, immortal, glorious God Who's greater than the altar? Who's greater than the altar? Or what is the, is the altar greater than God? Certainly not. So if you can't make a, an altar which is the lesser, how are you going to make an image to God who is the greater? Just follow it through. Use your brains. It's illogical to do that. So making an image of God is blasphemy. It brings God down. And yet you see in places like the sanctuaries of Catholicism, you are stunned by the beauty of the high gilded altars and the images that stand above them. That is idolatry. So a crucifix, that is a forbidden idol, because it gives us only a picture of a dying, helpless man when Jesus was in fact the Almighty God. And so that image of him makes him less than what he is. It's a terribly insufficient picture of Jesus Christ, who is the incomparable, incomprehensible union between God and man, a hypostatic union that you simply cannot picture in an image. It's impossible to do. So what will it do? It degrades the immortal, invisible, only wise God. Now thirdly, An image is forbidden because Jehovah is jealous. He's jealous over his people. Like a husband is jealous over his wife. He doesn't want her flirting. And God doesn't want you flirting with anything that you love more than him. He's jealous over his sovereignty. He'll never surrender his right to rule. He will be God and the only God. He's jealous about worship. He wants you to worship in only one way. His way. And he commands that making idols is not the right way. And so he'll not let you challenge his right to tell you what true worship is. And then most of all, God is jealous about his glory. He's high, he's holy, he's lifted up, he is immortal, incomprehensible, unimaginable, luminiferous, brilliant as pure light. 
And so he'll not let you bring him down and deface him and disfigure his essence and dishonor him by destroying his glory. So are we serious about not having idols in our church? Well, you better believe that we are. Because we're never going to dishonor God. We are not going to extinguish God's glory by putting cold, stone, deaf, dumb idols in our church. But as I say that, we have to know this, that we are guilty of idolatry in many other ways. We don't have statues. There aren't any in the church. We don't have them. But we do have this, and this is fourthly, images in our imagination. We have gods in our minds that take the place of a living God and they take us away from the purpose to worship Him and glorify Him forever with all of our heart, all of our soul, all of our mind, all of our strength. Now, do you see that word imagination? What's in it? What's the root? Image. Exactly right. And the definition of imagination is the formation of a mental image of something that is not perceived as real and is not present to the senses. So any other God is not a real God. It's a God of imagination. If it's not real, it must be imagination. And so the definition of this makes it obvious there can't be any benefit in worshiping something that's not real. There, nothing imaginary substituted for what is real can be of any value. Now, strangely enough, God takes this even further by telling us that imaginary gods have power. Well, how is it possible that something's not real could have power? Well, the imaginary God is in your mind, and what it does, the image in the mind has the power to destroy the mind. Now, th- this is what I meant when I said when you break any of the Ten Commandments, it's idolatry. I mean, this, this stuff takes place in your mind. And we just go down the list. We've, we've covered the first two commandments, those we've talked about. Let me just pick out some of these others, and let's see if they fit idolatry. Look at verse number 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. How can not keeping the Sabbath, and of course we'll get to that commandment later. We'll be talking about Sunday worship, of course. But how, how could not keeping the Sabbath be idolatry? Well, there's one big word that you could put there, time. Time can be your idol. So you say things like, I don't have time to go to church. That translates into other things are much more important for my time. And so time becomes your idol because you put that in place of God. So time, anything that takes you away from God like time, is your idol. That's your God. Let me ask you this. Do you like to vacation? I sure do. Uh, Next month, I'll, I'll tell you this way in advance. Next month I'm going to be preaching on the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. And it just turned out, I don't know why God did this to me, but it just turns out that after I preached that first sermon, I think it's the first one, second maybe, that uh, I'm leaving on vacation. And I won't be here for the next Sunday service. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, do you, do you like to vacation? I mean, do you like to vacation so much that you can't be in church? Do you like to vacation so much that you can't hold a job in the church because you're not dependable enough even to be here? That your retirement and your travel has become your God? You know, I wonder why aren't there more elderly Christians that reach the age of retirement that say, wow, you know, I can retire and now I can spend more time serving God. I can spend more time working in my church. Now I don't have to go to work. Now I can spend time for the Lord and serve Him rather than all the other things that you like to do. You know, we wonder why young people don't want to serve God. Well, the answer might be they don't have any of the elders that are giving them a good example because the elders are off doing something else and leaving all the rest of the work to people that are here. So if you like to vacation all the time, that's going to be a problem because that can become your God. Now, what else? We'll look at verse number 14. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Now, adultery in the commandments is not just about marital infidelity. The word here actually means any kind of inordinate sex. It can be premarital, marital, homosexual, transgender. It even covers pornography. 
So maybe you say this, well, I don't have any adultery in my life. I would never do that. But you give yourself to this awful, pervasive problem of pornography. And that's eating up Christians from the pew all the way to the pulpit. It ruins lives. And if that consumes you, then you're guilty of adultery and idolatry. Now, the leaders of our country are very concerned that everybody has the freedom to pervert ourselves in every way possible. And so they say, uh, we, we can make these kinds of laws that allow all these kinds of terrible things, the, the sexual things, and what they're saying is we're God. We, we don't have to listen to God. We make the rules. God's Word can't rule us. We are free to resist God whenever we want. And there you have it again. Self is the idol. And then look at this one in verse number 15. Thou shalt not steal. How many of you have God's tithe in your pocket still after the offering plate has been passed? You'll not give to God what's his because greenbacks are your God. And so you'll not worship the true God by giving him what he requires. So your car, your house, your puny things, those vacations that we talked about, money is your God. Now, I promise you this. I would never, ever say, I can't afford to tithe and then roll down the highway on vacation with God's money in my pocket. I would never do that. Well, those things can become your God. Money is your God. Covetousness is idolatry. Didn't we just read that? Covetousness is idolatry. So greed, not giving God what he wants, what he requires, means that you love money so much that you would steal from God. And we looked at that in Malachi 3 a few weeks ago. You know, God doesn't even call it stealing. He calls it highway robbery. Taking God's money. Now here's an interesting little note for you. Those of you that live in Reynolds Park, uh, over on Golf Course Drive, there's a sign that says Bacchus Restaurant and Wine Bar. That's over at the Doubletree Hotel. That isn't even subtle. You know that? That's not even subtle when it comes to idolatry. You know who Bacchus was? Bacchus was the Roman god of wine and debauchery. He was the god of the orgy, unrestrained consumption. And then get this, in mythology, he is always pictured as androgynous and described as a womanish man. Do people ever try to cover up this kind of idolatry? They worship alcohol. They celebrate sexual deviance. They applaud the hybrid male-female creature. In President Obama's convention speech about a month and a half ago or so, he loudly, proudly proclaimed his accomplishment when he said, Now in our armed forces, a man who is a Marine does not have to hide his love for his husband. Aren't you Marines proud of your commander-in-chief? What are they celebrating? They're celebrating the god Bacchus, the Greek cult of Dionysus. And sadly, Christians will vote for Bacchus, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. Even the Republicans were sure to put up a gay billionaire on the dais, as if that's something that we all aspire to. And so we're proud to celebrate false gods. So sex, money, greed, covetousness, time, we're not innocent of this. These are all idols that Christians worship. Christians are just as guilty as the world in doing all of these things. And so we look around the church and we say, oh, there are no idols in the church. We're not idolaters. But folks, there are plenty of those in our heart. And that just begs the question that I started with. Can you be a Christian and be an idolater? You need to examine yourself. Can you be a Christian and have all these things in your heart that you put above God? Do you really love God? That's what it's all going to come down to in a few minutes. We'll see that. It all comes down to loving God. Do you love God in the right way? If not, then you're an idolater. Now, if you'll turn with me for just a minute to Ezekiel chapter 8. Our time is limited. I'm sorry I don't have time for the exposition of this verse. I'll be infringing on your time on God's day. And so what you'll do is stare a hole in the clock or your watch if I take too much time. But look at verse number 12, and we see a stunning illustration of the exact point that I'm trying to make about images of the imagination. 
Ezekiel 8, verse number 12. Then said he unto me, Son of man, hast thou seen what the ancient of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. For they say, The Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. Now, who are these ancients of Israel? These are actually priests. They're priests who claimed that they were following the one true God. They were people who said, we don't have any idols. We deplore the worship of idols. But what does the verse say? He says, everyone, do you see what everyone does in the chambers of their imagery? Now, the ancients then were priests who had secret rooms where they worshipped false gods, just like the heathens that they hated. And these rooms were filled with images. And some say that those rooms were actually in Israel's temple. Now, you're familiar with what we've taught you about the temple, that the average Jew, if you weren't a priest, you didn't go into the temple. Only priests could go in the temple. So you did, I mean, everybody else is on the, in the courtyard and so forth. But normal people just wouldn't go visit the temple. Only the priests could go in. And so nobody had any idea that these rooms were there. They had no idea that there were images of false gods that were in these rooms while these priests were pretending that they were worshiping God alone. So there we're talking about real priests and real rooms and, and physical idols. But the story that we have at Ezekiel is actually emblematic of what goes on in the secret places of our heart. So here we are in church where there are no visible idols, and yet in our heart there are many of them. Now, here's another interesting note. Go down to verse number 14 in chapter 8. It says, Then he brought me to the door of the gate of the Lord's house, which was toward the north. And behold, there sat women weeping for Tammuz. I think this is just such an interesting part of Scripture. And I don't have a lot of time for the details, but let me mention this. Do you know who Tammuz is? Well, he was actually a god of the Babylonians who was born from an egg that fell from the sky. His mother was Semiramis, and she was known as the Queen of Heaven. Now, listen very closely so you get this frightening connection. In the 4th century, the Romans worshipped these same gods. I mean, in fact, if you, if you study mythology, you go across the uh, history of ancient religions, and many of them worship the very same gods, only by different names. And so the Romans in the 4th century worshipped... Tammuz and Semiramis. And it was in the 4th century that the Emperor Constantine supposedly converted to Christianity. And when he did, he brought the idols of heathen worship over into the Christianity of his empire. And so instead of worshipping Semiramis as the Queen of Heaven and Tammuz her son, they only bothered just to change the names. And so Mary, or Semiramis, became Mary, and Tammuz became Jesus. So when you, when you hear Roman Catholics talk about this, what do they call Mary? The Queen of Heaven. That's the same thing that we see here in, in Scripture, that this false god was called the Queen of Heaven. So they call Mary the Queen of Heaven. And then, Tammuz, the birth of Tammuz, the Babylonian god, flows from this. That's from the egg that fell from the sky. And so now you think, well, what is, what is a part of Christianity's holiest day of the year? Easter. And what do we have on Easter? Easter eggs. Even the term Easter, many believe, comes from Ishtar, which is the same god as Semiramis. Now, you see the issue that we've got here? False gods are everywhere. John Trapp, the old Puritan preacher, wrote about Ezekiel 8. He said, the popish temples are many of them dark and some so stuffed with presents and memories are thereby made much darker. And his reference was to idols and gifts that are made to idols in Roman Catholic sanctuaries, chambers of imagery. So idolatry is everywhere. It was an ancient problem. It is a modern problem. People worship false gods and they worship the true God in a false way. That's idolatry. So what should Christians do about this? I think the answer is easy. Get rid of the idols. Everything that you put in front of God is an idol. So you forsake all of those things, have no other gods before him. 
You're not to make a physical idol to worship, and neither shall you make an imagery or an image, an imaginary one, in your heart that you worship. So what should you do? Well, Exodus 34 would be a good starter. Verses 13 and 14, it says, But ye shall destroy their altars. This is what God's telling to Israel when he goes into Canaan. But ye shall destroy their altars, break down their images, cut down their groves, for thou shalt worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Now I know you're not permitted to go over on Snyder Avenue and break down all the images in the Catholic Church over there. But what you can do is you can start with the chambers of imagery that are in your own heart and clear out all the idols that are there. Get rid of everything that takes the place of God. Now finally, the second commandment must be examined not only from the standpoint of what it prohibits, but also for what it positively commands. You cannot worship the true God in a false way. And so what you must do is to worship God in the right way. Now, one of the problems with images is that they distract us from worshiping God in the right way. Well, that only makes sense. If you're worshiping Him in the wrong way, you can't be worshiping Him in the right way, so you're distracted from it. Philip Ryken wrote, We make an idol whenever we worship an image rather than listening to the Word. What an image always wants to do in worship is to distract us from hearing the Word. The crucifix, the icon, the drama, and the dance. These are things that are not, these things are not aids to worship, but make true worship all but impossible. In a visual age, we need to be all the more careful not to look at the image, but to listen to the word. Now, do you hear what he's telling us here? The visual, the image, distracts us from the word. It obscures the word. Now, you think about the things that Satan likes to do the best. That would have to be chief among them to obscure the Word of God so that you don't get it into your heart, so that you don't see it, you don't understand it. And so you you think about people that use idols. How much of the Word of God is heard in a Catholic church? Do they preach the Word of God? You're not going to hear a sermon from the Word of God, but what you will hear are all the rituals that go on for their idols. Now notice what Riken said about drama and dance. What that tells us is that Roman Catholics don't have a corner on idolatry. Also, evangelical churches do this, where they have drama presentations in place of the preaching of the gospel of Christ. I remember attending a church, a Baptist church in Vallejo, on a Sunday morning, and in the preaching service there was a guy who got up on the platform and acted out a little story as if the entire congregation was kindergartners. And all that I could think of was, Lord, help us! Are God's people so ignorant of what must be taught that we have to have object lessons and fairy tales to teach God's people? Where's the Word of God? Do we have to do that? Well, I think the Word of God's lost somewhere. I think it's lost at the coffee bar. Or lost at the sickening, lost in those sickening spineless churches with their hipster pastors and their Hawaiian shirts. It's all lost. Plays in place of preaching. Is it not good enough to let the Holy Spirit work through the Word of God? Do we have to dumb down God's Word for people to get it? Apparently we do, because we're dealing with eternal principles for worldly idolaters. Now, you take away the seriousness of what we do and replace it with the show. That's exactly what the visual, thumb-tucks-texting, thumb-sucking Christians and churches want today. Most of them, many of them, cannot find a book in the Bible because there's an app for that. So the modern seeker church gives us church without the word. They give us bands, poor imitations of pop icons. You know, the modern church doesn't even realize that they've stuck themselves in an old 90s model. They're still doing the same thing. They haven't grown an inch in the last 30 years. So give them dancing. Give them coffee bars. Today you'll look hard and long for a church that still uses the Bible and still explains the Word of God. I read something satirical the other day I thought was pretty good about a church that uh, their fog machine broke down in the service. 
And so they thought, well, we can't worship anymore. We've lost the Holy Spirit. We don't have our fog machine doesn't work. What are we going to do? Now, the second commandment says that we must worship God in the right way. How do we do that? We worship God through the Word. Now, let's think about that for just a minute. What is the Word? And I'm sure most of you would say, well, the Word's the Bible. And you'd be right about that. Why do we preach the Bible? Well, how about for this reason? Uh, Peter said that we are born again through the incorruptible Word of God. But that answer doesn't really even get down to the bottom of what the Word is. So let's take a look at that. Let's turn over to John chapter 1, and let's look at what the Word is. What do we have to have in order to worship God? We find it here in John chapter 1. What is the Word that Peter talks about? The Word that we are born again. John, John explains as he writes. John chapter 1, verse number 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Now what's the word? Look down at verse number 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So how are you going to worship God in the right way? You can only worship Him through Jesus Christ. He's the living Word. You see, God can't be fathomed with an image. And so in this church, we don't have any visual aids that will make you think of God. The only way that you are going to perceive God when you come into Berean Baptist Church is through the Word. It's through the preaching of the Word. That's how Christ is revealed. That's how God the Father is revealed. Through the living Word who is Jesus Christ. That's how you get the knowledge of life in Christ. Now it's impossible then to worship God in the right way unless you give people the living Christ through the Word that is preached. It's through the written Word of Christ that we get the living Christ. So we don't get a dead Christ that's on the cross. We get the living Christ who's in the Word. And that's why we prefer the Bible much more than an image, a cross with a crucifix. Or a cross that is a crucifix. Because the Word's the only thing that reveals the living Christ, not the dead Christ, the living one. And so if the preacher decides that he's going to pull the Word out from underneath of you and let you stand on plays and platitudes and poems, then you're never going to be able to worship God in the right way. And so the scriptures show us God in a way that no idol can. Only the word of God illuminates our minds to the living God. Now listen for a moment to this scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Eyes cannot see, ears cannot hear. That's a very interesting text. It's often misinterpreted. Most people think that verse number 9 is talking about heaven. That no one can imagine what God has prepared in heaven. And that's true. But that's not the meaning of this verse. It's a quotation from Isaiah 64, verse number 4, which says, for since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. So the meaning of that is that man cannot know God and all that he is except by supernatural revelation. And in Isaiah 64, verse 4, it's referring to the sacrifices and the rituals of Old Testament worship that were never fully understood until Christ came in the flesh. And he was the answer to those Old Testament sacrifices. And so nobody could understand what that fully meant until Christ came. And how is Christ revealed today? In the preaching of the gospel. So understanding God and what God has prepared for us, Jesus Christ, the only knowledge that we have of Christ comes through the Word. There's no idol that can do that. John also wrote in the first chapter, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. So eyes can't see Him, 
the heart cannot perceive him except through the word. It's the word that reveals it to the heart through the supernatural enlightenment of the Holy Spirit. So you understand this? You can't worship God without the word. And there's no substitute for it. So an idol then doesn't do anything but distract us from the Word. And there's where Satan works his hardest. He wants to get us away from the Word, get people away from God's Word. And what happens is that churches and preachers become willing accomplices of Satan to do it. So they take the Word out of the church, replace it with an idol, replace it with idols of the mind, give them something else, but don't give them the Word. Give them the plays, give them the dance, give them whatever it might be, but not the Word. Let's change things. Let's do things differently. We're the modern church. We don't need the Word anymore. And that's the same as saying we don't need Jesus Christ because you're not going to get Him any other way. Now, let me help you with this very important part of understanding the worship of the one true God. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 again, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love Him. God has prepared this for those that... Love him. Now, let's see the connection to the second commandment. Look in verse number 6 of Exodus 20. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, the Bible is perfectly cohesive. Worshiping God is about love. You have to love God in order to worship him. Now, how many times did I tell you in the introduction to this series that the commandments have one overarching theme? It is about love, that you are to love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You can't do it with an idol. You can't do it with an idol, real or imaginary. And so you have to ask yourself, do I obey this second commandment? And you have to examine yourself on this one basis, and it's love. How much do you love God? That's going to tell you whether you obey the second commandment. What's going on in the secret chambers of your heart? What are you holding on to in your heart that's more valuable to you than God? And that's going to tell you whether you love God like you should. So how do you know that you love God? That's a good question, isn't it? How can I know that I really love God? Well, I can't do any better than to paraphrase what... Thomas Watson, that great Puritan, wrote about this. So we're just going to just look at a few things here very quickly. How do you know that you love God? Well, first, desire God's presence. Do you love to go to church? Do you love to be around God's people where God is worshipped and adored? Jesus said, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the midst of them. So what if you have a whole group of people, a whole church like we have today, gathered in Christ's name? Do you think... Do you think the love of God is here? Do you think God himself is here? Do you love to be in God's presence? Watson said that people who ask, when will the Sabbath be over, plainly discover want of love of God. Let me translate that from English to English for you. If you're thinking, when is this sermon going to be over so I can get out of here? You lack love for God. You don't desire his presence. Now, I love that one because that means I can just keep on preaching. You say you love God, I say, all right, let's go for it then. Let's just stay right here. How do you know that you love God? Secondly, don't love sin. Don't love sin. If you love God, you can't love sin. Sin strikes God in the heart. Sin is idolatry. Every form of it is idolatry because it puts your ways above God's ways. So if you can't keep from sinning and you won't give it up, then you don't love God. Now that man that I, that I talked about in the beginning, he said you don't have to stop sinning to be saved, would be saying, well, you don't have to love God to be saved. You don't have to love God to be saved. You're not saved by what you do, but you better be very careful about saying, saying God says repent, but I say you don't have to. What else do you do? How do you know you love God? Love everything else less. Now, the world is filled with things to love. Love is good. Love your wife. Love your husband. Love your girlfriend with a godly love. Love your job. Love your kids. Love your church. I love my Miata. Love them, but don't love them more than you love God, and don't love them in the same way that you love God. Love everything else less. 
Now, if you love God in the right way, you will worship him in the right way. And what will happen to you when you, when you love God like you should, you'll love your wife better, and you'll love your husband better, you'll love your children better, you'll love your job better. Did you know that? The Bible says, do all that you do to the glory of God, and that statement is made in the context of your work. So even if you have a crummy boss, you can still love your job if you love God. Do all to the glory of God. Everything else becomes dramatically better when you love God. Fourthly, how do you know that you love God? You can't live without Him. How many live as if God doesn't exist? I mean, how many Christians live that way? How many Christians think about God? How many of them talk to Him? How many of them will come to Him? You know, you've got to think of it this way. God's in the air that we breathe. God's breath and He's all things. Do you see God as somebody that you can't live without? Is He as essential to you as the air that you breathe? You ever heard anybody say, I don't like air. I don't like oxygen. I hate oxygen. Nobody says that. That's the same thing as a Christian saying, I don't need God. I don't need to spend time with God. I don't need to be in His presence. I can live without Him. No, our lives as Christians are incomplete. They are out of kilter without God and His church. Because in His church is where we glorify Jesus Christ. We can't live without Him. Fifthly, do everything that you can to get to Him. How do you know you love God? Do everything you can to get to Him. Do you have a hundred excuses why you can't go to church? Or do you have a hundred excuses why you can't do anything else but go to church? Will you serve Him? Would you say to your employer, He says, I'll give you double time if you'll work on Sunday... Would you say to him, no, I don't think so. I'll work another day off. Give me double time for that. Well, if you're trying to get to God, he'll make himself available to you. If you're not, he'll be very hard to find because he knows you're not really looking for him. If you really love God, you can tell by how much or how hard you try to get to him. Sixthly, love him enough to lose everything for him. That's hard, isn't it? What are you willing to lose for Jesus Christ? Doesn't that tell you if you love things more than you love Him? What are you willing to lose for Him? Will that tell you if something else is an idol? Are you willing to lose your job? Are you willing to forsake your family if they say to you, you can't serve Christ? You know what Paul said, Philippians 3, 8, Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. That's not hyperbole for Paul. I suffered the loss of all things. Everything that he was, he had to give up when he became a Christian. He said, I do count them but dung, total refuse, that I may win Christ. Watson wrote, Who loves a rich jewel? Who that loves a rich jewel would not part with a flower for it? Reminds me of the merchant man who sold all of his pearls to buy the pearl of great price. Who keeps the lesser to lose the greater? Only a fool gives up gold to get a rock. You have to see how valuable that Christ is. There's nothing more valuable than him. He's matchless. Nothing is worth keeping if you lose him. Seventhly, love who God loves. 1 John four twenty and 21. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. You can't get any clearer, can you? In order to love God, you've got to love other people. If you don't love other people, you can't say that God is your God. And then lastly, fear. To dishonor him. We'll end here. Fear when you offend God. Fear when you offend him. And then do what Peter did. Go out and weep bitterly. Better to have anything happen to you. Than to besmirch. Than to live in reproach of the name of Jesus Christ. What is it that God wants? He wants glory. Above all he has to be glorified. Ungodly lives defame him. Fear doing that. Shudder at the thought. And that will show you whether you love God truly in your heart. So this is the second commandment. 
Worship the true God in the right way. Remove all the idols from your house and remove all of them from your heart. That shows that you truly do love God. Never worship God in any other way than the way that he requires. God shows abundant mercy for those who love him and obey him. That's the second commandment. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today. I hope that I could say for every person in this room that all of us know that we've been guilty. None of us can hide from the fact that we've been guilty of having images in the heart. Maybe we don't have them at home. We don't have them in our church. But every single one of us is guilty of having some idol, maybe more than one idol, in our heart. A God of the imagination that takes place over Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to give them all up, to serve you and you alone. You have clearly told us you will not accept an idol for worship. If we love that thing that we're holding on to more than we love you, we are guilty of idolatry, and we are not true Christians if we are idolaters. Lord, help us today to see that. Help us to work on these issues, to get rid of everything. May every Christian today just in their hearts or even physically, be on their knees this morning and say, God, forgive me of the idols that I have in my heart. I want to serve you and you only. I pray that's the cry of every heart today. For those who are lost here today, Lord, I just pray that they would understand what I told that man. You must repent of all your sins. You must renounce all of your sins. You must put your faith in Jesus Christ to save you from them. He's the only help that people have. The only way anyone's going to heaven, the only way to worship God is through Jesus Christ. Help that to be clear to the hearts of Christians and lost people alike today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.